Well, KC, how are we doing tonight? Man. Sweet. Hey. First try there. That's how it's done. I am uh, I'm pumped to be here. If you don't know me, uh, my name, like they were saying, I'm Cole Steckline. I, uh, I live and I work in Columbia, Missouri. I am a uh, proud Mizzou graduate. We got any other of y'all in here? Heck yeah. That's, that's a lot for Mizzou fans. We normally don't really care. So that's awesome. Well, hey, and I am also a diehard, lifelong Golden State Warrior fan. So this is a big night for me. That's my guy right there. So if I look a little nervous up here, truly, I'm not really afraid of y'all at all. I just like, my guys tip off in like 45 minutes. So, you know, this is, it's a big night for me. It's a big night. But I'm pumped to be here. We've got a new series um, called Misconceptions. And so basically the goal of this series, like they're saying, we're just going to examine some things that the culture would say is true, um, that we would see most people would live their lives as if it's true. And all we want to do is just examine these for what they are. We want to go to the Word. And we want to decide for ourselves in this room tonight if this is something that we truly believe is actual truth that we should live our life by. And if it isn't, how should we respond? And so that's my goal tonight. I, I just want us to examine one misconception and let's figure out what we as a group think about it. But I want to start off with potentially the biggest misconception in my life that I had shattered for me once upon a time. How many of y'all in this room had that one friend who just believed in Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny, the Tooth Fairy, just like a little too long, a little too long. Probably every one of you can think of someone. I can't, because I was that guy. That was me. <laughs> However long you think is like too long to believe in Santa or the Easter Bunny, add like a year to that, that that's probably me. That was probably me. So let me tell you about how it went down. So it's like, you know, warm summer night um, at home, and I lose, I lose a tooth. You know, so I'm, I'm fired up. You know, I've lost a tooth. I'm going to put it under the pillow. I'm going to get some money, right? And my dad finally is like, man, this kid's like way too old. It's, it's time to tell him. So he sits me down. He says, hey, Cole, I got to tell you something about the tooth fairy. I'm like, yeah, the prices go down, like inflation. Like, what's, what's the deal? Am I going to get a penny this time? Like, and he goes, hey, I got to tell you something. The tooth fairy and the Easter bunny, they're your mom. And I'm like, mind blown. Like, what? They're moms? So I sit there and I, you know, I'm processing it. Like my whole life, I've believed in these figures that bring me candy, bring me money. And I'm like, okay, this, this is pretty crazy. And I look my dad in the eye. I say, so what? You're going to tell me Santa's fake too? And he just, you can see his heartbreak. He goes, son, mom, Santa too. My whole life was shattered. My life was changed from then on out. My misconception of what was true was shattered. And I had to respond to it. A more serious misconception that I live most of my life of is a misconception we're going to talk about tonight. This idea that more fill-in-the-blank equals more happiness. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight. When I came into college, what does everyone tell you when you're, you know, you're at your high school graduation? Everyone tells you, you get like your dad's best friend. He comes up to you he's like, son, best time of your life. You're going to live it up. It's going to be the best time of your life. Cherish every moment. So I'm like, heck yeah, I can't wait. It's going to be fun. So I get there and I think I'm going to have, you know, all the friends, the social life, the grades, the influence, positions, involvement. I'm going to do all these awesome things. I'm going to have an incredible social life, go to all these fun parties, all these events. And I get to college and I do all those things. Truly, I checked all the boxes. College, my freshman year, was awesome. I was having so much fun. I had so many friends. I was making better grades than I thought I could. And yet, in that time of my life, my first semester, my freshman year, I had never been more sad. I had never felt more alone. I had never felt so much darkness. And it just didn't make sense. This misconception I had for so long that the more fill in the blank, the more social life, the more influence, the more fun, the more happy I was going to be. That's how life works, right? And it wasn't until I met a guy by the name of Joe. 
who had experienced college just like I had, but he had put his faith in Jesus. And it took him coming up to me and having a conversation with me as a kid from the Bible Belt, Northwest Arkansas, thought I knew everything about the Bible, faith, I had it all figured out. And it took him really confronting me with the true gospel of who Jesus is and what he did on the cross and really calling me out and saying, the way you're living your life will show that you don't value what Jesus did and you don't truly believe that he's the Lord of your life. And when I put my trust in him, I truly experienced for the first time that really less of those things equaled more happiness, but more of Jesus and more of a life living for his purpose really led to this more happiness, but a different happiness than the world had promised. And that's what I want to talk about tonight is that, that type of happiness, this misconception here. And so we could, you know, talk about a whole lot of different topics, but I think what will be really, really important that I want to do tonight is to help us just understand, first and foremost, what is happiness? Is, is the happiness that the Bible talks about different than what the world talks about? Is it the same? So I want to just put some definitions around happiness, and then ultimately, let's apply it, and how can we pursue happiness as God intended? And so what we're going to do, we're going to start off with two things. We're going to start off trying to get a good working definition of what the world would call happiness, and then we're going to turn to the Bible and, and try to define it according to the Bible. So happiness, when you think about it, if someone came up to you, you know, on the side of the street and ha asked you to define happiness, it's really, really hard to define. I even Googled the definition of happiness, and literally in Webster's Dictionary, the definition of happiness was to be happy. I was like, that doesn't really help at all. It's just hard to define. It's just kind of a feeling. You just kind of know when you're happy and you know when you're not. It's just, it's, it's a feeling. And the reason that is is because that, quite literally, happiness, by the world's definition, it's really just like a scientific, biological thing. Happiness, at its foundation, is when your brain is just flooded with a couple different hormones. You have oxytocin. Oxytocin is a type of hormone that people, when you're, when you're, when you're in a good mood, that's oxytocin. It stabilizes your mood. When you're feeling like you're in a positive mood, oxytocin. Dopamine, that's your pleasure hormone. Anytime you're doing something you enjoy, you're eating a really, really good food, watching a good movie, having a great conversation, dopamine is in your brain. Literally just a hormone in your brain. And then last, there's serotonin. Serotonin, or sorry, not serotonin, oxytocin and serotonin combined gives you like the warm and fuzzy feeling that you have when you're like, you know, in love or something like romantic like that. And so those, the combination of those hormones, that's happiness at its definition, at its core. And so that's the tricky part with this whole misconception that we're talking about tonight is if that is our definition of happiness, then this is right. I would be lying to you if I came up to you and I told you that a paycheck a vacation, a relationship, buying clothes, um, you know, getting a promotion at your job, whatever that might be for you, whatever you want to fill in that blank, if I were to tell you that doesn't make you happy by the world's definition, that's a lie. Because truly, those things, scientifically, are proven to make you feel those type of hormones in your brain. But the issue with that definition of happiness is it is completely rooted to your circumstances. It is completely tied to what's going on in your life. And even when you feel those things, when you buy a new article of clothing and you get that hit of dopamine and serotonin and you're pumped about your new purchase, it's going to fade away. It's going to pour out. I think of it like this. Think of like a, if I had this big like vase up here and let's pretend this is your brain, right? But because we're human and we're not perfect and circumstances come, we punch a bunch of holes in, into this vase, right? And then we have another vase full of water, and that's happiness right here. And we keep, we go and, you know, you take a vacation with some friends, and you pour some water in there. You're feeling happy. That's great. But it's all going to pour back out. So you need to buy something new. You've got to get a new job promotion. You need another paycheck. And it's just this constant battle of pouring things into your cup, watching them flow out, 
and just a constant battle of trying to find this happiness that the world promises. Don't take it from me. This, God even directly talks about this idea in the Old Testament thousands of years ago. In Jeremiah 2, we have here, 2.13, God says to the prophet Jeremiah, he says, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, or a different version, like a vase or something that holds water. They have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns, that cannot hold water. God is literally pointing to this idea that I am the water, I'm the living spring of water. I'm never going to run dry. Yet my people have forsaken me and have chosen these other things. They've chosen to fill in the blank with things other than me, and it continues to run dry. And so what I want, and what I think God wants, is God, God doesn't not want us to enjoy things. God doesn't want, want us to not go on trips and things like that. He wants us to be satisfied and delight in life and have fun and all those hormones are great things that we should have in our brain. God wants that, but he wants something so much more. He wants his own version of happiness, a happiness that is independent from circumstance. And we even see him begin to talk about what it looks like to achieve this type of happiness in one of the most popular passages in scripture, um, a sermon by his own son, Jesus. Turn with me if you have a Bible or a phone. We're going we're gonna to camp out in Matthew 5 for a little bit here. Um, and what's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is up on a mount, literally, in front of a bunch of different people. He's got his disciples there. He's got some people that would be considered disciples, but aren't, like, following him super closely, like, you know, the 12. Um, and then there's just some other general public. So it's a broad range. In the first topic, the first topic he hits in this sermon, he goes straight to happiness. This is, like, his pursuit of happiness sermon. He wants to put a definition around it and how to achieve it. And just... As we read through this, think about this misconception, that more blank, more money, more time, more influence, more power, whatever it is for you in your life equals more happiness. And look at how Jesus describes it. And before we get in there, he uses the word blessed, right? If you look up the word blessed, as it, Jesus uses it in the Greek, literally it's translated as the Greek version of happy. So you can fill in the blank. When, we, when the, you see the word blessed in this passage, you can literally think in your head happy. He's, he's talking about the idea of happiness. So let's get into it here. Matthew 5, we're going to start in verse 3. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We see Jesus here completely flip this definition of happiness on its head. He's saying that happy or blessed are those who are persecuted, insulted, who are weak, who are hungry, who are thirsty. It's a, it's a total different definition. It's a less blank equals more happiness. It doesn't make sense to our brains and how we live. This is just a totally countercultural definition of happiness. A, uh, a scholar defined this type of happiness and I did a bad thing. I feel like anytime you're supposed to, you give these talks, you should like cite your source, right? And like, I read this, I'm like, oh, that's sick. I'm totally using that. And I don't know this guy's name, so I'm sorry. I'm not even sure. He's probably dead, but it's a good definition. So 
how he defined it, uh, there's a Greek word for blessed. It's like makarios. I probably butchered that. And it's a joy which is serene and untouchable, completely independent from the circumstances of life. I just want to read that one more time. because I just, I just think that is so powerful, that the happiness God wants for us is a joy that is serene and untouchable and completely independent of the circumstances of our life. That's the type of happiness that I want. When the seas of this life toss me to and fro and things are difficult, I want to be able to come back to this type of happiness that's going to remain the same no matter what. And we see this in this passage. The way that Jesus would say we can achieve this is we see in every verse he tags, and we don't have to read all the way back through it, but for instance, when he says that um, those who are pure in heart, they will see God. The peacemakers will be called children of God. Those who are persecuted because of righteousness, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's pointing to something that is far beyond this world. He's pointing to eternity where we get to spend forever with God. He's taking the focus away from here on earth, the circumstances here on earth, and giving us this promise that we can experience true happiness because we have hope in something that's going to last forever. And it pales in compare anything on this earth pales in comparison to the eternal life that we get to have with God. And so that sounds great. I, you know, I love the idea of having that type of happiness, but man, is it way easier said than done. I've found in my own personal life, just over the last year, me and my wife have gone through a lot of difficult things, and I've found it really, really, really easy for me to not believe Matthew 5 and to believe this misconception. I've found for myself personally, the things that I love, I love experiences. I love to, you know, go on a trip, go out to dinner, watch a good movie, watch the Warriors play basketball. Those are like my things. I love them. And they, and, and they temporarily make me happy. And I cling to those things. I cling to them. And I have found that when life gets really hard, I don't typically run to God and, run, and think of eternity and think of, you know, the hope that I have in eternity. It is so easy for me to just want to hunker down, throw on a new episode of Stranger Things, and just like binge on, you know, just binge. And just think about nothing of eternal purpose, of eternal, of eternity at all, anything of God, anything spiritual, it's really, really difficult to believe this. So that's what I, I want to camp out for the rest of tonight. I just want to get practical. How can we fight against this misconception, and how can we experience happiness as God intended it? So I think there's two things that we find in Scripture that are kind of buttonheads within our heart that's causing us to kind of go back and forth between this truth and the truth that, that Jesus has for us. And I, I'm just going to boil it down into two words. I would say we have materialism, which what I mean by that is just like the pursuit of the things of this world. All these examples I've given, trips and money and all that, materialism. And then on the flip side, what I think God would want for us and what I think a lot of us in our heart of hearts want is contentment. Just being at a point in your life where you just feel content and satisfied no matter what, no matter the circumstance. Those are the two things that our heart is kind of battling between. Um, and I just wanted to really just paint the picture um, for you all of what I, what I see in culture for us as young adults living in America. I have some statistics. I know statistics can kind of like wash over you sometimes. It's just a bunch of numbers. It's like, okay, what does that really mean? But really try to lock in for me here because I think this paints a really, really interesting picture of our reality here in this country. Um, so I'm going to start on one side of the coin with materialism. And let's just kind of check in, see how we're doing as Americans at being materialistic. Um, so just to start, Americans spend $1.2 trillion. I don't even think we can really, like, comprehend how big that number is. $1.2 trillion on non-essential items per year. So just items that, it's not food, it's not clothing, it's not water, it's none of that. Just things we don't even need. We spend $1.2 trillion. 
Uh, one in four Americans who have a two-car garage only use half of that garage for their actual car and the rest for stuff because they don't have enough room in their house or just their junk. Um, this stat blew my mind. So 3% of the world's children live in America. So of all the children in the world, only 3% of them reside here in America. Yet 40% of the toys in the world are owned by American children. That's wild. We start them early. We buy these kids a ton of stuff. And so that, it starts from a young age. And then lastly, because I don't want us to think that like um, Christians are, you know, off the hook. So in America, which this is an interesting stat on its own, 247 million people in America would profess to be a Christian, claim to be a Christian. I don't know how they got that statistic, but that's, you know, what the internet says. So you know it's right. So 247 million people in America identify as a Christian, and only 1.5 million of those surveyed said that they give any money at all regularly, give any of their money away at all regularly. 1.5 million of the 247 professing Christians give any money at all regularly to the kingdom of God, to their church, to whatever that may be. So even Christians in America, we love to just hoard our stuff. So I think it's pretty safe to say that Americans, those are just a few statistics. I could, we could go all night. Are pretty good at materialism. We've, we've kind of got it down. We buy a lot of stuff. We like our stuff. We consume our stuff. A lot of people come from other countries to consume our entertainment. People are doing really good at materialism. So you would think, if this is true, more blank equals more happiness, we'd be a pretty happy country, right? I'm sure you already know the answer, but here's some statistics. So is this working? 48% of the U.S. workforce, so let's just call it 50, one in two people that are currently employed would say that they're actively looking for a new job because they're not satisfied at their current job. One in two of your friends, it, the numbers get way worse for young adults, probably way worse than 50%, are actively unsatisfied in their job and already looking for, for the next big thing. Number two here, we've got that 61% of young adults in America would identify themselves as feeling serious loneliness. That's a really, really sad statistic. In a world that is so connected by social media and entertainment and all these different opportunities for social interaction, 61% of young adults would say they are seriously lonely. And then the last statistic is that 14% of Americans would identify themselves as happy. So the flip side of that is that 86% of Americans today would, would not be able to say that they are truly happy. In a culture that is doing so well on the first half of this equation, 86% of us would say we're sad. Something is not working. Something's broken. This equation is not working for so many people in America, and there has to be a solution. And we could sit here all night and pontificate and, you know, strategize why we're unhappy as a country. You know, it's, the, it's social media. It's video games. Movies are unrealistic. Our employers work us too hard. We need more PTO. You know, there's like a million different strategies that, that, that we could talk about that the New York Times has probably written about. And those all have their value, and there's, there's probably some truth to it. But I'd rather just go to God's word. And I think, that, I think that God specifically, through Paul, writing a letter to his disciple Timothy, talks about this idea. So if you still have your little Bible out, come with me to 1 Timothy 6. This is going to be the last passage we camp on um, for the rest of tonight. Um, and read this with me. So, I guess before we get into it, a little context, just real quick. Um, he, he's really talking about the idea of money in this passage. And I think money is the thing that probably a lot of us fill that equation with. Um, but obviously, this can be so much more than that. But specifically, 
Paul is talking to Timothy about this idea of like loving money and materialism and trying to acquire more, more money. And so there'll be a verse in here that I'm sure a lot of you have heard before. Um, but that's kind of the context we're walking into here. Um, and so after talking about this desire for, for wealth and gaining wealth, he says godliness with contentment is great gain. So he's start coming right out of the gates and saying that what really matters, what we really should be pursuing is godliness and contentment. And he says we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. That's kind of a crazy thought I've never really thought about. It's like, that is pretty trippy. When you come into the world as a baby, you offer nothing. You're completely dependent. You've got nothing going on. And then when you die, you, you bring nothing with you. So it's just like this true, like, bookends. Like, wow, there, there's truly, we've, we've got nothing going for us. But I think this is important. There's a sense of humility about that in understanding that, that God really is, is the giver of all good things. Going on, he says, if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. If we have what we need to live, that's enough. Um, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And so Paul really lays it out there of what true contentment looks like is this this just deep-rooted sense of humility and understanding that we are wholly dependent on God, and it's a trust in God that he'll provide what we need. But it's also an understanding, and I think it's important, is that, you know, he says the love of money. He doesn't say money is the root of all kind of evil. He doesn't say your vacations or wanting a better job or any of that is necessarily evil. It's this desire, when we begin to desire that more than we desire God and godliness um, and being content, that's when the real problem comes in. That's when the destruction comes in. And that's where we read those statistics of the loneliness and the sadness. And we could wade into even deeper waters of statistics about depression and anxiety and things that get even deeper um, and, and more and more sad. I think a lot of it is rooted in just this desire and pursuit of things that ultimately can't satisfy. So I, I want to, to end the night with just going through some, some applications. You know, this all sounds really good, right? To sum up the night, we have this idea of happiness uh, from the world and, and, you know, what the Bible defines it as, which is this happiness that's not rooted in circumstances. Paul would say that, hey, try to fight materialism and be content and, you know, really trust God to provide. All that sounds awesome, but how do we practically, on a day-to-day -day basis, how do we accomplish that would be, would be my question. And the beautiful thing and what I love about reading Paul is he almost always has some sort, of, some, some sort of practicality to it. So the very next verse, he gives Timothy some practicals. He says, Timothy, where are we at? but you, man of God, flee from all of this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. In two, two simple steps, what Paul is calling us to do is to, number one, is to flee. Is to identify that part of that formula. What is it for you? What is it that more blank makes you more happy? What do you think that is for you? Paul calls us to flee that, to abstain from that, to try to run from that, and instead pursue the things of God. Pursue these, these things he talks about, like righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. More practically, pursue things like consuming and reading his word, spending time in prayer, spending time with someone who's helping you grow in their faith, spending time among other believers that can challenge you, encourage you, support you. What would it look like for us as a room to both flee the world but also pursue the things of God? I came up 
with like a couple of practical things that I thought, you know, would maybe be good. And you guys are all probably really, you know, creative bunch of people and can think of your own applications. But I just thought of a few. Um, I think, you know, one thing you could do is maybe you're just a person that just has, you just, you love to buy things. Retail therapy, right? You've got just a ton of stuff that you like to accumulate. What would it look like for you to just take inventory, give away some stuff, and just simplify your life? That can be a really practical way to fight against this misconception. Or for instance, maybe, maybe you're someone that just, that just has an issue really budgeting out your money and you just spend way more on yourself than you spend on others and you spend on things that can impact others in their walk with God. What if you just invited someone into your life to keep you accountable and say, hey, here's my monthly budget. What do you think? And you check in monthly on how you're using your money. Really, really, really simple application of fleeing the love for money and pursuing a life that is generous and sacrificially generous. On that topic, maybe you've never given before. You've never given to, you know, a church or a ministry or a missionary or something like that. What if you just started by making a goal that you wanted to give just a small percentage of your paycheck this next month to something that is going to impact people for, for God? could be really, really simple. This one is something that hits like a little bit more home for me is for some people maybe dealing with some of this stuff, this idea of happiness on a much, much deeper level, it may be time for you to seek out a biblical counselor, someone who understands the deep wounds that we have emotionally and can help you begin to process them in a biblical way for the first time. This is something that just recently has impacted my life in an incredible way. Your emotions are important. God cares about them. God wants you to experience happiness how he intended it. And maybe you just need someone who specializes in that type of stuff to really walk alongside you and help you experience God in a whole new way. That could be someone in this room tonight. Um, a couple other quick ones um, is just, you know, again, give, giving your time sacrificially, going and serving. There's a million different things we can do. And I trust that you all um, can, can come up with that your own. But I wanted to kind of give us all like a blanket application that everyone um, can do. Um, a very specific one that I think would be cool if we all joined together this week and did as a group. I've been getting really into landscaping recently. This is kind of a sidebar here. I think, you know, once you turn like 25, you just start to like slowly evolve into your dad. And I'm like officially in that like part of my life. And so we've recently moved to this place. And I like, I love landscaping, man. Like moving shrubs around and mowing the grass and stuff. It's like, oh, it's invigorating. That's probably what I put in my, my formula there. And so I've been recently introduced to this thing called weed and feed. If you're like half a man, you probably know what that is. But I didn't. And I was like, man, i got a ton of clovers and dan dandelions and just like some junk in my yard. And so this weed and feed, for those of you who are like me and don't know, it's just this like concoction of stuff that you like spread on your lawn. And it does two things. It has two functions, weed and feed, right? Makes sense. So the weed is it goes in and it snuffs out and it kills the weeds. It kills the dandelions, the clovers, all the stuff that looks nasty in your lawn. And then the feed part is there's fertilizer in there that helps your grass grow. It's really invigorating stuff, right? And so I was like, man, I'm going I'm to do this. I remember my dad laying this stuff down. Like, I should do it. And so I did it to my new lawn. And crazy enough, I, you know, spread it all out. It rains. It soaks in. I go back out about two weeks later. All the dandelions and weeds and stuff are gone. And my grass is, like, green and lush. I'm like, heck yeah. Like, my man badge was, like, I was fired up. It was awesome. And so... Coming back to what really matters, I think there's an ancient discipline, a spiritual discipline that people have been practicing for thousands of years, as corny as it sounds, that's like spiritual weed and feed, okay? And it's fasting. And some of you are looking at me like, this dude's a Jesus freak. Like, he fasts? Like, yo, this dude doesn't eat, like, food and water? What a freak. But fasting can be so much 
so much smaller, and you can, you, it, it can mean so much for your personal walk with God. And why I bring up the weed and feed analogy is really what fasting is, as a definition, is on one side, you are snuffing out and trying to kill and abstain a desire of yours. And you can, it doesn't have to be food, right? It could be, you could fast, you could give up Instagram for, you know, maybe you have a lunch break at work that you usually just spend on Instagram. You just decide, today I'm going to give it up for the lunch hour and I'm going to spend time in prayer. That's, that's fasting at its core. That is the same idea as fasting. And maybe it's bigger than that. Maybe you want to give up social media for a long period of time. I've, I've given up social media for like the last three months or so. I only say that just to let you know I'm better than you, you know. I feel like, <laughs> feel like people really like to like, that's like a badge of honor. It's like I gave up social media. And it has been great. I'm not going to lie. But um, that, that could be a simple thing you can do is you, you can give up social media. Netflix, maybe it's, um, you know, somewhere where you've been spending a lot of money. You know, like for a month, I'm not going to shop online. That would be wild. That would break my brain. It could be something like that. Or it can get as, as real as giving up food for a day, whatever it may be. But the whole purpose of fasting that I don't want you all to forget about is that it's the same idea of weed and feed, is that you're going to weed out these desires, but you have to replace it with something. And that something is something that's going to matter spiritually and in eternity. And so the idea is that as you're trying to get rid of these desires of whatever it may be, that's for you to fill in the blank, you need to replace it with, you know, maybe time in prayer or time in God's word or even just silence and solitude and just taking time to sit and just think about the things of God. That's the beauty of fasting. And what I think we'll find is that as we do this more regularly, we'll begin to desire some of those things we're giving up less and less and we'll be able to go to God with this heart of dependence and that, God, I want to do those things, but I want to want you more. And God, I pray that you would just rewire my desires and help me experience true satisfaction in you. So that's my, my challenge for every person in this room. I mean, you don't have to do it. It's like not like you're never going to see me again. But I, like, I would like to challenge everyone in this room. Just pick something. It doesn't have to be extreme. It can be really short and easy. But pick something to give up this week. And when you would normally be consuming whatever that thing is, try to replace it with something that will help you grow in your faith. And if you need help thinking of an idea, your friend probably knows what you need to give up. If you've got a good friend in your life, they'll probably tell you. And my wife will probably tell me I need to not watch the Warriors game tonight. And I'm taking a break tonight. I'm watching the Warriors game tonight, let me tell you. But there's something that you need to give up. There's something that we all need to give up. And so I would challenge you to do that this week. And so I just want to end with this. The beauty of all this, this idea of happiness, is that it's truly a gift from God. That God promises in John 10.10, 10, he says that the thief or what he means by that is like the world, it comes to steal and kill and destroy. But I came that you may have life and have life abundantly. And that's a promise from God. And God does not go back on his promises. And the only reason we have access to that promise is through the gospel, is through what Jesus did on the cross. So for those of you in this room that maybe haven't put your faith in Jesus, this is a gift that is on the table for you to accept. Jesus went up on the cross. He took our sins on his body. He died for us. He defeated death. He rose again so that we could spend eternity with God. And while we're still here on this earth, we can experience life to the full. We can experience a happiness that is not rooted in our circumstances. And for those of you who are believers, remember that. Remember that truth. Go back to that. Whenever you're, you're finding yourself like me in a difficult time in your life and you just want to run to the things that you think make you happy, but you know in your heart they don't, just remember this truth in this scripture that God wants a happiness that is, rooted, that is not rooted in circumstance, that you have your eternity sealed for you in heaven. And what would it look like for us to begin again, like Paul says, 
in 1 Timothy 6.11, to flee those things and instead pursue God. So pray with me, and I'll, I'll welcome up, um, and we'll get the rest of the night going. Dear Lord, God, um, just thank you for your word, um, and thank you, God, that in a world that can be really confusing, God, and a world where happiness can seem fleeting and unattainable at times, God, you give, you give, and you give, God, and you give us a truth, God, that we can experience a happiness that's not rooted to what's going on in our lives. God, I pray that we would be a people in this room that are willing, um, God, and that desire to, to flee the things of this world and to pursue you. And God, help us just to fall in love with your purposes, God, who you are and what you offer us. God, that we'd fall in love with your word. We'd fall in love with communicating with you through prayer. Um, God, I just pray that you would change every person in this room's desires, um, God, so that we would pursue you over anything else. God, I pray for the person in this room who hasn't put their trust in you. God, I pray that you would just be heavy on their heart tonight, and God, help them understand their need for a Savior. God, that their sin has separated them from you. God, and their need to put their faith and trust in you so that their sins are forgiven and they can experience this abundant life that you promise us. God, it's not a life that is necessarily happy like the world defines it. God, but it's a, it's a sense of happiness that's going to last for forever. It's a sense of joy that, that is not rooted in circumstance. It's going to endure no matter what comes at us in this life, God. And I pray that, that you would help us all just to remember and hold tight to that promise tonight. God, we pray it's all in Jesus' name. Amen.